Hi, Rebecca. How are you today? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Excellent. Thank you. Um, I have already introduced you as a survivor, um, and that's about it. So if you would please tell us who you are and what you have survived. All righty. My name is um, Rebecca O'Donnell. I was raised uh, in the Midwest by a um, very low-income family of addicts. My father was addicted to um, alcohol and sex and violence. My mother was an alcoholic, pill popper, kind of Munchausen syndrome person. My family history, pretty much everybody were addicts, aunts, uncles, both sets of grandparents, cousins, my brother, my sister, all of them addicts. Can you give, some us, a little idea never... when, can you give us a little idea of oh, what the time period was? Like when was this, in the 60s, 50s? Well, yeah, I was uh, born in, in uh, December of 1961. Okay. Okay. And the, uh, you know, my parents have been raised by addicts. It went back for generations. There's a reason that they call it a chain. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. some reason, I never turned to drugs or alcohol. What What but, is the, uh, um, um, you said you're, they were raised also by addicts. What, what kind of addictions did the grandparents have? Because, you know, you know, drugs and alcohol, they've kind of evolved over the years. Well, know. no, my, my grandfather was an alcoholic. And he was kind of into opium, too. Mm-hmm. My, my grandmother was an alcoholic. These are my paternal grandparents. Mm-hmm. My mother's father was an extremely violent, uh, wife-beating alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He used to beat my grandmother in front of my mother and, and her sisters. And my grandmother was a, kind of a closet drunk, mm-hmm. and she beat the kids. Uh-huh. And she was also, um, she really enjoyed provoking her husband into beating her. And then the next day, she, she she could show her family, you know, her bruises and her black eyes, her broken teeth. She finally left him after he beat her unconscious. And when she fell on the floor face down, he sat on her back and he grabbed her hair and he smashed her face into the floor repeatedly broke every bone in her face and broke out all of her front teeth. That was right in front of my mother when she was 11 years old. Okay. I think so I that was kind of the background. My, <laughs> I met my, my father's father only a couple of times because he was so violent and so mean. And, uh, and my dad kind of took care of him only because he was afraid that he would die alone as an old man because my dad knew that he was... He was cruel as well, mm-hmm. and everyone hated his father, so he's like, I want to kind of pay it forward so maybe people will take care of me when I get older. Right, I see. So it was a still it was still that, that addictive way of thinking all about me. Right, always, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. um, my dad used to um, come in once a month for as long as I can remember. I mean, even before I was, you know, in kindergarten, and show me exactly what I cost him every month and then tell me the things that he could have bought for himself if I didn't exist. Wow. And he used to call me the accidental squirt anyway. And you had brothers and sisters? Yeah, my my brother, I had um <clears throat> I had two brothers. My one brother um actually never turned to drugs or alcohol. He was like me. But he was killed in a motorcycle wreck when he was nineteen years old mm-hmm. by a a stupid young teenage kid, hot rodding. Killed him. Right. 
And um, my other brother was 10 years older than me, and he was a severe addict and a real real sadist as well. He and his buddies, when my, my mother was a waitress, and they volunteered to babysit me for free mm. when I was eight and nine years old after my, you know, my nice brother was killed, Ian was killed. And they used to get high and get drunk, and they would take me out to this barn, you know, miles away from our house and gang rape me. And I would go into catatonic freezes. And I remember being aware of it. Mm-hmm. And I would just sit there and do nothing while they would put cigarettes out on my head. And they would, um, you know, kind of torture me. And then they would they would gang rape me. And I would just bleed and bleed and bleed. Um, I actually uh, had a ruptured uterus and didn't know it because I was too tiny. You know, right, that's right. very common. Right. And well, um, uh, what you know, you the way you're describing all this, a lot of people think today that they're reading the papers about these bath salts that are making people do, you know, eating people's faces and and doing all this weird stuff. But it really isn't particularly the drug. It's it's drugs and combination of people's personalities in general. Well, and environment is everything as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my my brother knew that my dad you know, was, see, my dad was also um, molesting me, but he didn't rape me until I was 13 years old. By then he had stopped drinking, so his addictions were just the violence and the and the mm-hmm. sex. But, um, you know, he used to beat my, you know, my abusive brother unconscious all the time. And so he, was, uh, he was his example. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, be. It, Parenting is far more important than people think. They think, mm-hmm. you know, they make the mistake of thinking that they need to just be their, you know, their kids' friends. Mm-hmm. And that's that's very dangerous. You know, everybody always says, I've talked to a lot of abuse victims, and they say, oh, I just did exactly the opposite of what my parents did, and then it was okay. Well, it's not okay. You have to, you kind of have to find a middle ground. You have to be a parent. Your job is to protect and nurture those kids, and you didn't not feel to be that. their you buddy. Yeah, you didn't feel any, but but you're, it, it wasn't that your parents were trying to be your buddy. They, my they father the, would. My was. father tried to be my boyfriend, uh-huh. mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. uh, my brother was so obsessed with me and is still to this day obsessed with me. I don't, I don't have any contact with him. I'm a thousand miles away from where he lives. But, um, for example, uh, we were raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. And when I had first communion, I had a, a communion veil with a little crown on it. And he made his 15-year-old bride wear that communion veil when they got married. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, strange, obsessive things like this, which is very common in addicts as well. You know, they no, like and So where was your mother in all this? My mother was um, drunk. Mm-hmm. and popping Valium like candy. I remember she talked about how nice my brother and his friends were that they were babysitting me for free. Mm-hmm. And then she used to, um, you know, kind of denigrate me as, as kind of being a sleaze. And when I was 13 years old and my father finally raped me, you know, he'd been feeling me up and doing all sorts of gross things for years. But when he actually technically raped me, he went for a motorcycle ride after, and Mom came home from church with my sister, and he had planned it that way. 
I went to her immediately and told her what he had done, and I was bleeding. And she said, well, if you didn't flirt with him, you wouldn't do it. You're just an incestuous slut, mm-hmm. and you can't blame a man if he can smell it on you. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of how she dealt with everything. She, she, she learned from her mother. You mm-hmm. know, she saw her mother talk, you know, talk to her friends about, oh, suffering and everything like this. And, and then she saw her father, too. And, and my mother basically became a combination of the two. She used to say it was so humiliating for her to be raised by the town drunk. Well, we were raised by the town drunk. She was the town drunk. Right. Well, let me ask you this. Go back to, like, when you were five, okay? My what? When you were five years old. Okay. And tell me what it was like living in your home, because this was before your brother was babysitting for you, and, you know, just, just what your perception is of life as a well, five-year-old Well, it's, it's strange when you're, when you're raised in an environment like this and it's a household that doesn't really allow friends to come over very often. Mm-hmm. And, every, you know, addicts really like to play their cards, you know, close to the chest. Mm-hmm. And they don't like people to know their business. And um, so I never really knew that the outside world was not like this. Uh, my mother never taught us anything, never talked to us about anything. My sister had a period for a year. She thought she was dying. She didn't know what it was and because ladies don't talk about that. And so growing up in the family like that, it was just, you just kind of, you just kind of survived it. Mm-hmm. And you existed. And I basically, even as a child, I dreamt of getting out, I knew for some reason, I, I always knew that education was the key to get me out of there. So I concentrated on my school. And what I didn't realize was that I was severely damaged emotionally, mentally. I had a year of amnesia after my brother was killed. And um, I didn't deal. You know, when you're in the middle of a war zone, you don't have time to do any kind of you know, dealing with problems and, and, you know, taking care of yourself emotionally because you're simply surviving, you know. Mm -hmm. I I talked to, you know, one girl who I know who was um, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder because of her childhood Mm -hmm. and uh, because you're basically in a war zone. And I remember being very fond of my father because he was the alpha male. Mm -hmm. And we just basically became his pack you know we we hated him and we loved him at the same time and my mother we were just kind of disgusted by because my dad would make fun of her and torture her in front of us and we you know we just thought well she deserves it you saw that she was weak yeah that she was weak and that she was two-faced because she would talk on the phone with her friends and tell them how her children meant everything and that she would kill anybody who hurt her children Whereas she would watch dad beat us until we were bloody mm-hmm. right in front of her. And she would say, don't make your father angry. Right. It's your fault. You're making dad angry. So what happens when you go, okay, so when you start school, don't people, what, don't the teachers notice anything different about you? Well, thankfully, things are, are, are different now mm-hmm. and it's, it's illegal to not say anything if a teacher notices something they can get you know in a lot of trouble uh-huh. so that kind of that kind of helps but um 
you know, teachers would occasionally call my mother and say that I was acting really strange and doing strange things. And um, she would say, well, you know, she's she's an artist. She's crazy. She's a strange mm-hmm. little girl. And they would just shrug at that. Mm-hmm. And then my brother, you know, my brother was antisocial and violent, so the teachers were afraid of him. Right. And then my sister was the perfect the perfect cheerleader prom queen type. And so mm-hmm. all of us dealt with things in a very different way. And that's, that's true of all families and loved ones uh, with addicts and alcoholics. Right. You know, everybody, it, it's, everybody, it's, everybody just deals with it. And it's so uh, odd to watch a whole family how differently everyone deals with these things. But, you know, and then there's, of course, all that denial. But let's talk a little bit about um, um, now versus then, like we were just talking about. What do you see in um, in the schools now? There are, I guess, all these laws where you said that you know they they have to uh, they have to uh, report things. But what happens when they report things? I mean, are children taken away from families now, or a lot of times? Yeah, I mean, one of the good things about it is is if there's even you know the possibility of abuse. They're legally obligated to go in there and take the kids out. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times they give the kids right back, but right. it's much better than it was. And are you talking about physical abuse? Because um, you know, living living with parents physical that are, and physical yeah. and sexual, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you know, with if you have a you know, often now with the prescription drugs and heroin and everything, there are a lot of husbands and wives, young husbands and wives that are addicts together. They, oh yeah. You know, they, oh they, yeah. And and these poor little kids have uh, it's and they're not necessarily being physically abused or sexually abused, but the mental abuse and abandonment um, is big. And I'm I'm just wondering if any teachers would notice that, or is that something that they have to be compelled to tell also, or it's kind of a judgmental thing, isn't it? Well, it's also fear. You know, when my son, you know, I moved my family, my kids, a thousand miles away to get them away from the influence of the people I grew up with, and my son still turned to drugs. And for his first two years of high school, he was a severe addict, and I had no idea. He was making straight A's. He's got this genius IQ, so straight A's were nothing to him. Mm -hmm. And the teachers were afraid of him. But then um, the second he entered his uh, junior year, there was, a new, there was a new assistant principal. And the assistant principal, everyone, all the teachers assumed that I didn't care because I never returned any of their calls mm-hmm. and I never uh, answered any of their mail. And then the assistant principal says, well, that doesn't make any sense if you tried to call at weird hours. So he mm-hmm. called me at 11 o'clock at night. I was working two jobs. Uh-huh. And my son would take the mail, and he would delete all the messages and things like mm-hmm. this. So I never had any idea. Right. I couldn't go to PTA meetings because I was working. And teachers were terrified of him. And mm-hmm. they didn't want to say anything because they were afraid of repercussions. He was very scary. So that, you know? so there's an, there's and they an... also, people, you know, people realize that if you step into this, it is a lot of work mm-hmm. to help mm-hmm. this person. And people really kind of want to avoid that. They don't yeah. want to help the kid. It's definitely true that they, well, they probably want to help, but they don't want to have it be a big part of their life. They don't. And it would be a huge part of their life. Right. And, you know, 
but so let's get to the the real meat of this conversation but i my passion lately has been for these i see these poor little children 3 year olds 4 year olds in a family with addicts that are high all the time i mean forget the fact that they can go out and drive and kill somebody or kill themselves or they drive with these children in the car i've spoken with i've spoken with kids that are like 10 or 11 and they talk to me about when they were 3 and 4 how afraid they were to get in the car with their families with their parents right. And right. I used to I used to yeah. sit behind my mom when she was driving and, and with my hands around around her for when she, you know, drove off the road and drove us into a ditch. I I would actually learn how to drive and I was a little kid. Well, see and that's the thing that's what I want to talk a little bit about. Little day to day things that are so frightening and fearful for these little kids that nobody would even think of. You know what what are some of the things you might remember like that, like getting in a car and driving with them? Well, when I would come home from school I I knew that that uh, my mother would be home, my dad would not be home. Mm-hmm. And so you you do a strange thing where you scout out the house and you look to see what's going on. You come in, you know, especially when you're little, you you come in and you you're as quiet as you can be, and you actually try to be a little bit sneaky, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't know how it's going to be. Now with my mom, my mom was so weak and disgusting to us that I wasn't even afraid of her as a little kid. She used to do all sorts of, you know, threats of throwing my sister out of the house if she didn't obey, and so my sister would obey. And my mom would say, I'm going to throw you out of the house. You know, when I'm eight years old, and I'm like, fine, throw me out. Mm-hmm. But um, with my dad, you had to be on pins and needles all the time because you never had any idea when he was going to freak out. And he would just freak out at nothing, nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you would try to joke your way out of it. I remember when I was two years old, and I had done something that made my father angry. I don't know what. And he took his belt off, and he snaps in the belt between his hands, and he's you know, talking about how he's going to beat me with this belt. Mm-hmm. And I said, Daddy, you better put your, pants back, or your belt back on. Your pants fall down. Mm-hmm. And it made him laugh, and I avoided a beating. Mm-hmm. And um, but you had to be really like sharp. For, like, you were always on edge. Yeah, and and like in the cereal cabinet, you would always know how bad it was going to be because um, they had they would hide their their booze bottles in the cereal cabinet, and then you could see it, look and see if there was a new bottle. Like my mom would drink a oh god a bottle of whiskey a day, and she was only five foot tall. Mm-hmm. And um, and so you would know how bad it was going to be. And sometimes you had to you had to look down when you walked all the time because there would be patches of vomit on the floor, and you didn't want to slide in it. And if you slid in it, and you got your shoes or your clothes dirty, then you'd get a beating for that. Mm-hmm. You'd get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And um, there were very specific places that we as kids were allowed to go. Like there were two bathrooms in the house. We were never allowed to use the one bathroom that had the tub, except to take our bath. Mm-hmm. And we were not allowed to use the front door. We had to use the back door. And if you use the front door, then you were just gonna it, you were just gonna get it. You never had accidents, and you never bled, because if there was blood and you got blood on your clothes, you would get in huge trouble. And then 
you would have to work off the cost of the clothes. Mm-hmm. Even as a little bitty kid, I remember crawling around on my hands and knees picking up tiny twigs and cigarettes out of the backyard because I, you know, I'd gotten blood on my shorts. So what you're what you're really expressing to us and showing us is what we really we we don't know the details because a lot of us have not lived this, but we understand that addicts and alcoholics, when they're using regularly. Uh, you can't you can't predict anything they're very unpredictable. you cannot predict anything they're com- you have no idea what they're going to do from one minute to the next you pretty much kind of know that it's going to be bad but it can be mm-hmm. bad and it can be terrible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know so you, you you're pretty much always knowing it's going to be bad so with this no and there's told- only so far that you can joke out of it or you can well, when you try little, to charm you know, them out of it. A lot of the little ones aren't strong like you. I mean, it just depends. As we said, everybody deals with this differently, and I'm sure each little kid deals. Yeah, with my this sister. Different. My sister was very fragile emotionally, mm-hmm. and that actually saved her from being beaten mm-hmm. because she would really play the. I mean, she she played the helpless little girl role very well, and that's what protected her. Mm-hmm. I played the mouthy tomboy, and it didn't protect me. Right. Well, so let's. And talk also, a bit I, about I was in in the. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Goodwill Hunting, but there's yeah. a scene where he says, "Yeah, my foster dad used to put out a belt, a stick, and a wrench, and just tell me to choose." Mm-hmm. And he goes, "Oh, I." You know, the psychiatrist goes, "Oh, I'd have to choose the the belt," and he goes, "No, I chose the wrench." And he goes, "Why?" And he goes, "Why? Because f him. That's why." Mm-hmm. And I burst out crying in the theater, and, and the guy I was with was like, what's the matter with you? Because I would have chosen the wrench, too. And mm-hmm. I did. I would choose things like that. And it's like, oh, yeah, you want to beat me? Then then actually do it, you big disgusting mm-hmm. thing. And that well, was my attitude. So what? So let's translate this. First of all, let's agree that there's a lot of this going today, these days, because there, there's a lot of still secrets. A lot of people don't even know family, you know, what do they say? You don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Oh, There's and secrets kill. Yeah. Oh, yes. A lot of secrets going on. So so let's agree that there is a lot of this going on and there are a lot of young children affected. So tell us, for you, how this translated into your adulthood. You mean what it did to me as an yes. adult? Mm-hmm. It made me, I, I was very smug because I didn't do drugs and I didn't do alcohol. Mm-hmm. But I kept making bad decisions in relationships. I kept having this overwhelming self-hatred. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I tried to kill myself in my 20s, and, and, and it just never got better. Uh-huh. And I couldn't understand why, because I wasn't in it anymore. I'm like, well, why can't I just move past it? Well, you can't move past it until you you actually help yourself. Mm -hmm. So I I always considered myself, I now consider myself an insecurity addict. Mm -hmm. So all these years where I thought that I was not an addict, I actually was. I was addicted to insecurity and it made all my decisions for me. It, It made me choose rotten relationships. It made me accept stupid jobs. It made me accept that I didn't deserve better. Mm-hmm. And so I actually had to combat that, and I decided to combat it as 
an addiction. And I thought, well, I'm kind of like a diabetic. I'm, you know, if I don't take my daily dose of self-love insulin, I'm going to be a mess. Mm-hmm. And so I, I actually started saying, I love you, Rebecca, to myself every day. I didn't believe a word of it. Right. Mm-hmm. I called myself names for doing it, but I kept at it. And every night I would say, good night, beautiful mind, good night, beautiful body, good night, beautiful spirit. I didn't believe that either. Mm-hmm. But I, I decided repetition was the key. You know, in school you keep repeating a spelling word until you know how to spell it. And I decided repetition was the key to this. And so... Well, that's how you got I, where you were because you, you had this repeated abuse day in and day out as you were growing up. Exactly, exactly. And so you have to combat it with... I, I tell people, I said, one of the things that really insecure people do also is we're always looking for our soulmate. We're always looking for someone, you know, a knight in shining armor, someone to come rescue us, someone to make us feel better. Right. And that soulmate is right here, right inside of you. And I've I basically become my own soulmate. I nurture myself. I love myself. I'm my own best friend, which well, is they do, just they do an amazing say, thing. Yes, they do say that, you know, no, but you can't really be happy if you're expecting it from somewhere else and someone else. That's right. It really That's right. does need to come from within. And, and I, tr- I also believe that uh, you, I've turned, I believe I'm my own best friend also. And I think that's a, I think everyone needs to be that way before they can be somebody else's best friend. And I think that also we're so hard on ourselves and we, you know, we hate ourselves so much. We, we have to, of course I'm going to slip backwards and insecurity is always going to try to drag me back in because it's like a virus it wants to survive it wants to live it can't flourish and it can't grow in a healthy environment it has to grow in an unhealthy self-loathing environment and so i i have to deny it that Mm -hmm. but i i will always be plagued by it i will always be an addict just like someone who's addicted to a drug or alcohol they will always be an addict it's whether they're using or not Mm-hmm. And you know, they and so, still, a lot of people still have that w- way of thinking. I mean, just because they're not using their oh yeah, they're drink. you know they're a dry drunk exactly, or you know, or they're a dry shooter, you know, as they call them. So we don't want people, uh, little children. We want to. We don't want them to have to go through this. But we see that there's more and more of them doing that. And to me, they it seems like every other population has some support or some kind of help. But this is a population, which is frustrating to me, that there's really not that much help. And uh, I think it's because uh, people enable their loved ones who are addicts um, and don't think, of the chil- don't, don't think of protecting the children as much as they should, family members right. especially. It, it's this ridiculous misgu- you know, misplaced family loyalty, mm-hmm. which is so destructive but it's it's basically a brainwashed mindset that that family members have especially family members of addicts not only is it denial but it's it's a feeling of disloyalty if they tell if they right. do something about it and so they throw these children under the bus whereas they think they're doing the right thing you have to you have to step outside of that and actually see that this child is is bleeding this child is being destroyed, literally destroyed. You know, I, I, I know many children who died from this, mm-hmm. you know, 
I mean, I, I, I taught a little girl who had a full hysterectomy at the age of 10. And, it, and they had to do it to save her life because she was so ripped apart. And it was her mother who had been selling her. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm excited about, though, which is very different from when I was little, is that there are programs like this, like, like yours. There are people who talk about it openly now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very, very important difference. There's, you know, there's the line, a lot of things were acceptable until we stopped accepting them. Right. And this is just a be- you know, just another basically civil rights act, except it's for children, you know, and 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 adult children of addicts. You know, I know so many cutters and burners and all these other things. These people, you know, and and I'm talking not just young adults. I'm talking adults in their 60s and 70s who are oh. still burning and cutting themselves. Absolutely, because well, they had that, had these things happen to them as children. Right. And so and so, you know, we need to somehow be proactive so we don't keep having generations of kids growing into adults and having this happen. But I, as a mother of a heroin addict, as you also had a son that was an addict, I'm sure, well, maybe you were, maybe in your situation, because of your experience, you were a little more alert to not loving them to death or not loving them so much that you're going through the whole picture. Yeah, I was a complete idiot in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I... My own insecurity put my my children at risk. Uh-huh. You know, I my son had written a you know an award winning essay, anti drug essay, and he was already a coke addict. He was a cocaine addict at the age of twelve, and he was, you know, he was basically doing everything and had mm-hmm. just started experimenting with heroin by the time I put him into rehab when he was fifteen. But I saw so many red flag behaviors, which in hindsight, I look and I'm like, oh, my God, that was really stupid for you to not realize that. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't so much stupid as, as blindness. Mm-hmm. But denial is something that, that you know, your, your kids can't afford for you to have. Right. And, and you that, also and, and can't be it. gentle with, right. with a using addict either. I, I used to tell people, I said, look, I said, Sure, it's your kid, but he or she is a using addict, and a using addict is a low-down, dirty dog. There is nothing decent. There is nothing noble or kind or thoughtful or loving or even, you know, remotely good about a using addict. And until you realize that horrific truth, you cannot help them. Mm-hmm. You must realize what they are and what they are capable of. I know a woman whose whose addict son raped her and threw her through a plate glass window. I know another mother whose daughter stabbed her almost to death and then had her buddies come in and, and play with her. Mm-hmm. I know another mother whose, you know, her her son broke every bone in her face, reminiscent of my grandmother, mm-hmm. and busted out all of her teeth. And and she, know none of I them. I know a lot of those stories too. Right, and none of them have any. They are in such a a la la land mm-hmm. of believing that their child could never do that because I'm your mother or I'm your father well, or I'm your brother, your sister. Even if they're even if they're not in denial, you know, even if they're fully aware of all of what we're just talking about, they still have this thing in them that. What is, first of all, they worry about what other people are going to think. Don't they love their children? 
And oh, that's yeah, that's a that's, bad one. That's big. Yeah, that's and a then, bad and one. And then for and then for themselves, you know, what kind of mother or what kind of father am I that I would turn my own son in? But when it comes to these adult children having little kids, that's even worse because you have these these victims, these innocent little children. Yeah, and, and you as a grandparent or whatever have a moral obligation to get that kid out of that house. I don't care what excuse you have or how sorry you feel for the parents. The second that baby is born and they're using addicts, you need to get that kid out of the house. Yeah, and that's, that's just all there is to it. That's definitely something that I know is not done. You know, right. They, they, it, unfortunately, so, yeah, yeah. There's so much of that dysfunction and, and not only denial, but hope that it will get better. But, you know, a lot of the times, you know, it, before it gets better, it gets a lot worse or, you know, and sometimes very bad. Yeah, and so, then the kid's dead, or the kid is ruined, right. the kid is destroyed, and then the kid decides to simply become a, yet another link in the chain, and then it continues. Because they don't want to feel. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, well, that's also, these... also, there's a, a horrible mindset of, well, you know, I have a bad childhood, so my kids are going to have a bad childhood. Now mm-hmm. it's my turn. It's my turn to torture. Right. I hear that a lot. And that's... And you know, that's Sometimes, sometimes that's subconscious. I mean, may, sometimes people don't state that, but you know but that they, they feel have, it. They feel it. Oh yeah. And it's and and so this is the dilemma. Well, I mean, one of the reasons I have you on today is because you're one of the few people I've spoken with that did not turn to alcohol and drugs, because it's it's very uh, common that they do, and and it's understandable. Oh, yeah. It's understandable. First of all, they have that as an example. And second of all, you know, if there's no one helping them, what are they going to do? They can't, you know, a lot of the times, as you said, your son was, is like, was like 12 years old. Well, there's a lot of 10, 11, and 12-year-olds now. Oh, because yeah. It's, it, because a lot of the generation of their parents now are not, they're not just sitting around smoking pot, which, you know, I'm not even going to comment on that. But right. there, there's a lot of cocaine and uh, opiates and and alcohol. I mean, alcohol is one of the biggest abuse abuse substance that there is. No, so, the most disgusting thing that will just make me freak out that parents do is when they host a party or a rave. Oh yeah, for their kids. And yep. it is so disgustingly common. And the excuse is always the same. At least I know where they are. That's what they say. And and we took their car keys away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I took their car keys away, but I gave them some drugs and alcohol. Right, right. You know? you know, And then they've got prescription pills in their house, and they don't lock them up or anything like this. And you know, oh, and that's, that's a, great. That's a, that's a big thing. And, I, and I, you know, we're trying to make this an awareness thing, and we're trying to talk about it so people will know about it. But most of the time we're talking to people that already know and are familiar with this, and the general right. public be- really believes that this is someone else's problem, and they may hear something about locking up their meds, but they're not going to do it because it's not going to happen in their house. Exactly. The the um, naivete is is stunning. Mm-hmm. It is sometimes, it? and I think it's so important to speak out about this kind of thing, to talk about this kind of thing, because one of the things that really thrills me is I'm I I never hold anything back, and I will talk about this openly to a complete stranger. It doesn't bother me because I think it's important to mm-hmm. share it. 
And people will ask so many questions because it's such a taboo subject and it should not be a taboo subject. Right. Absolutely. They want to know. They want to see. And then you see that, that cringing look on some parent's face when what you're talking about sounds familiar to mm-hmm. them. And you're like, okay, their kid is using. And mm-hmm. now they're just beginning. They've already suspected it, but you're basically affirming it. Then maybe they can do something about it. And, and uh, you know, so much funding is cut to rehabs and everything now that, you know, in the economy and everything, and, and people don't, don't give money as much. And I mean, my number one charity is rehabs. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I'm like, know, okay, I know that. That's who I'm <laughs> going to give money to. I'm going to give it to a good one. I give to Daytop, right. which is where my son went. The statistics show that there are so many people that need some kind of rehabilitation and less than 10% of the people that need it get any kind of help at all. And 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 a lot of them can't afford the kind of help they need. It's just That's so why it's so important to open our mouth and to mm-hmm. just keep talking about it and keep doing it because you raise awareness and usually people are, are, are basically decent. I really mm-hmm. believe that. Even with my crazy childhood and the, the monsters that I've met and lived with, I still believe that humanity is basically decent. Mm-hmm. And if you show them a mess they are likely to do something, to maybe clean a little bit of the edges, to do something. Even if they wander off, they've done something. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I love to see people actually do something once they become aware, aware. Mm-hmm. of the nightmare right under their noses. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is one thing that's important to me for what I do when I do this show every week is I like to leave people each week with something they can do. You know, I, I want to give them either a tool for helping themselves or something that they could start looking out for and recognize that there's something they can do. And, and I'm, I don't know what we can come up with today, but I'd like to come up with something that family members can do or even if we're outsiders, what we can do, even if it's something little, to help these little children. I think the number one thing that people don't recognize is their own courage. You know, people assume that courage means lack of fear, which Mm -hmm. is not courage at all. That's sociopath. Courage is being absolutely terrified that you're shaking, Mm -hmm. but you still go and you do the right thing. And if you suspect that a child is suffering, and it's, say, your neighbor or your family member, you have to look inside of yourself and find that courage that is there. Whether you believe it or not, you do have courage and you can do the right thing. And the right thing is always the welfare of the child, regardless of hurting someone's feelings or, or ostracizing a relationship or thinking that you're being disloyal because you're protecting the one who's abusing the kid. Mm-hmm. Or your family members or spouse doesn't want you to get involved. Right. Mm -hmm. No one else's opinion matters. Opinions do not matter. They just feel like they do. What matters is the welfare of the child. Well, let's see. Let's get down to, I'm I'm a very practical person. And so here I understand the concept, and I hope everyone listening understands the concept. But let's take two short scenarios and we'll use a family member, and then we'll use a neighbor or somebody that's not in the middle of it. So 
if let's say you're a grandma and of course you love your children and they're both addicts and you have grandchildren and you know that these children of yours are driving these grandchildren around and you know that they're not putting them to bed when they need to be put to bed and sometimes leaving them alone. So what what is the direct route to doing something? You know, what is legally possible and do you know what the first step would be? Do you do you think that talking to your kids? I don't I don't particularly think that that works that well when you have active addiction. Well, usually grandparents have already talked to the kids right. and the kids just keep doing it. So that's kind of immaterial. And they just and they just say they're doing the right thing. Yes. Or it's none of your business. They're my kids, not yours. Exactly. Right. Right. It's, so, so what would be the next step that you would do? That I would do? Yeah, if you were a, a grandparent. In, in I would. Situation. I would. Uh, I would call a hotline, mm-hmm. like an abuse hotline, mm-hmm. and ask for advice. And then that way, you know, you have professional advice telling you what to do. My first instinct would simply to be to call the police. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's really hard to do on your own kids. And it doesn't matter that it's hard, but it, some people find it impossible to do. Right. So if you call a hotline, abuse hotline, they have great advice on different things to do. And you can find a hotline online. You can find it in the phone book. There's, there's abuse hotlines everywhere. And, so I, um, and I think that's an excellent idea. I, I yeah, really believe just in, call that in and, let, and listen it, yes. to the professional. Mm-hmm. Tell find you what re- to do. That's. I always feel that I don't really know a lot, but I know who to call when I need to get right. information. And that's a good. That is a good thing. And I, I would imagine that it would be easier for a family member to do first talk to their kids, and of course that will probably not get them anywhere. Then call the hotline and get information. And as you're doing these steps, maybe you get more brave because you're right. doing your Well, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing when you do these, even baby steps of, of courage like that, where you realize, I can do that. Right. Wow. Right. And yes, it was hard, but I did it. And then you, you basically have a little bit more self-worth as well, mm-hmm. which will lead you to the next step of doing the right thing. And you definitely feel like you're doing something for your grandchildren. You well, know, it's maybe, not even feeling. You are doing something. Right, for and, your you, and you can't really see any effects yet, but you know that you're working towards that. Exactly. And so, I guess the same thing would be now with a with a person that's not personally involved but sees this going on. Um, I would imagine they would be more proactive because they yeah, have that because you don't involved. have that you don't have the emotional tie so mm-hmm. much. Although you know, people with neighbors and things like that, they still freak out, and a lot of them don't want to get involved. Right. But again, you know, they talk about it, you know, it takes a whole community to raise a child. Well, be part of the community. Exactly. You know, uh, you you know see I a child that... suffering, then do the same thing. Call call a hotline, an okay. abuse hotline. Or, you know, if you have a lawyer friend or a doctor friend, talk to them. But it's better to actually talk to a stranger, I found, mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. on a hotline or something. Someone who is, you know, outside of the circle that you're in can give you advice right because i can see i could see how a lot of people just don't want to get involved with the uh, you know if they have addicts living next door or they work with them you know they're, they're well maybe, and they're scared of them exactly. and rightly so these are dangerous people exactly but you know but fact, but when it comes there's a kid to, in that house with that exactly. dangerous person. if it if it wasn't that there were children i mean i think the important part here is we have to do whatever we can to save those children 
the children are the number one thing. It doesn't, one of the things that made me pick the rehab that my son was in was they told me, they said, we're going to tell you right now, we don't care about your feelings or what emotions you're going through. We care about your child. Your child is our number one priority. You're going to have to just get over yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you want your kid to succeed, you have got to change. We're not going to fix your child and send them back to the same environment that encouraged them to do drugs in the first place. You mm -hmm. have to change. Right. You know, and it, it, it takes a while to rewire your own brain. It certainly does. Well, but it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. Well, we're running out of time here, and I want to talk about a minute or so about your, um, what you do, your, your book, your art. And, oh, okay. Uh, um, I used to teach art therapy at an abused children's home. And it, inc it encouraged me to, to do as much good as I, I could because I found I had a talent for helping these kids. And so people were encouraging me for years to write a book. My therapist uh, read my, my journals and suggested that I actually turn them into a memoir. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And my memoir is called Freak, The True mm -hmm. Story of an Insecurity Addict. <laughs> uh -huh. mm -hmm. And um, I talk to abuse victims and, and addicts pretty much every day and families of addicts, so as we, you know, we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to help them. The whole purpose of my book, A Freak, is to help as many as possible. I'm mm -hmm. good at it. I have a gift for it. And I, I, I feel I almost have a moral obligation to do it. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, tell us your website because one of the things I noticed when I was navigating through your website are your cartoon-like art projects, <laughs> and I thought they were very interesting. So I'd like to encourage people to go to your website and browse. Okay, great. It's uh, www.rebeccaodonnell.com, and it's two N's, two L's. And um, I'm also on YouTube on N, capital N, Security Addict. A lot of people like to watch the videos on that. Okay, well, but everything is on the website. I'll put the link to your website on my radio show page so it will be live, and then okay. they can go to it and they can get to anything from there. That's great. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I want, I want to tell you I appreciate that you've uh, given us this insight, and uh, hopefully somebody will take some of this and be proactive and do something. Well, and I, I just want to say to everybody out there, you know, there is nothing more difficult, hopefully, that you will ever face in your life than in doing the right thing by an addict relative. But what you have to do is you have to stand fast, and you will find bravery inside of yourself that you never even imagined was there. But it is there. And so don't give up hope. Don't give up and, and stand strong in the maelstrom of this very unfortunately common maelstrom. Well, thank you for that. And I hope that everybody is heeding, heeding these warnings and listening to this encouragement, actually. So, yeah, uh, I mean, you. they can do it. Any, if I can do it, and I was such a goofball, mm -hmm. anyone can do it. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very <laughs> it's true. much. Uh, thank you, and and I will post this on the radio show page, and I hope everyone will visit. So, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, stay on the line. I'm just going to turn the recording off. Hold on. All righty. <laughs> 